90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? Not too bad. I am packing for yet another trip. Oh, me too. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to good old Geological Society of America meeting in Seattle, so I'm pretty excited about that. Very nice. I will be out in the uh, the Bay Area. Oh, wait, AGU isn't till isn't till the later in the fall. John, what are you doing? <laughs> I am going on vacation. What? What's that word? What'd you say? I know. I had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, normal people do these things. That's what I'm told. <laughs> it's something about, you know, using PTO. Oh, no. no. Does, so, not, does not compute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm doing that. And uh, we've been very busy at work before I take off. We've had several meetings going on and some users coming in. Uh, but, you know, this morning on my drive-in, I'd done a couple of relatively long days. But there was a gorgeous lenticular cloud that I got to watch from the very first oh. peak of sun until about half an hour after sunrise. I miss those so much. <laughs> and for those of you that aren't familiar, I will try to put a photo in the Slack channel, or I did tweet it so you can look at my Twitter and you will see it. But it's just a beautiful example of actually a lenticular cloud from two different peaks. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. So it looks like um, a bunch of pancakes stacked up together and then more pancakes falling from the sky on top of it. It's pretty wonderful. It's pancakes all the way down. Exactly. <laughs> As you can <laughs> tell, I'm clearly I'm hungry, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, I'm going to stretch that transition and say talking about atmospheres. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> uh, you came up with this show which judging by the notes is probably going to be a two-parter yeah you know i get carried away you know you can't let me do these things it's true <laughs> um, just because the notes are four pages long come on um <laughs> well so this is something that i was teaching in my earth's past climate class so clearly it's about paleoclimate and i thought it was really an interesting paradox that we could talk about because it really makes you think and it has a lot of scientific method and a lot of story behind what this is in general and basically I figured we'd talk about the faint young sun paradox and earth's early atmospheres right because we definitely have not always had an atmosphere that looks like what we have now we talked about that some with Lynn Sorgan a few episodes ago. Right, exactly. And um, she's who I co-teach this class with, so, you know, it seems very <laughs> applicable. Right. Um, but, it, but it was, this faint young sun thing is really interesting, so I imagine that's probably what the first part of the show is going to be taking up. But paleoclimate, there's a lot to talk about in there. I figure we'll probably have a lot of shows coming up about it, and it's really the perfect marriage between both of our interests, right? atmospheric dynamics and then geology right atmospheric dynamics and geodynamics the same thing the prefix means different time scale Ex uh. exactly <laughs> right that's why i have a pinterest board that is not a not a rock and it's stuff that looks like rocks but in fact it's like clouds or you know snow formations so yeah it's the same physics different time scales right and 
So one of the important things when we're talking about atmospheric science or climate or even geology is what we call forcings, which are factors that are exerting some kind of influence on the system that changes its behavior. Right, exactly. So forcings that we would commonly talk about are like a cold front or something like that that creates some stormy weather. But in climate science, there are forcings too, and these are really long-term forcings, right? Climate in general is kind of defined as something in the past 30 years, and then paleoclimates, obviously, the past million years and stuff. So one of these large-scale long-term forcings that we talk about in paleoclimate is solar output. Right, and every meteorologist learns in their undergrad (laughs) radiation and climate class that the Earth receives 1,362 watts per square meter from the sun. (laughs) And that's the number we use for all the calculations. And uh, we go happily along our way. Oh, it's so sad. This is one of those assumptions. And we all know what assumptions do. Yes. Um, (laughs) So that number is the solar constant, which is basically the average amount of solar radiation that you receive anywhere on the planet. And obviously, that's not constant. And it's hardly ever true. And it's also across the spectrum, not just visible, not just infrared, it's everything. Right, exactly. Um, (laughs) But this number, the amount of solar radiation that we get on any one spot, clearly depends on lots of other things like cloudiness, atmospheric composition, even stuff like orbital parameters, and obviously solar output. So orbital parameters, okay, we know those. We have a pretty good understanding of orbital mechanics. Atmospheric composition is something we can measure or that we can infer from gases trapped in ice cores or composition of rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, cloudiness is a pretty short time scale thing, so that could change the solar forcing, you know, now, locally. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but solar output, that is not something we think about. I mean, there are space weather prediction centers and space weather is a thing, uh, but it's not part of what you see on the five o'clock news. <laughs> right, exactly. I think uh, on a human time scale, it's just not something that we think about. The sun's just there. It does what it does. And, you know, there are some small term sky- cycles, which we'll talk about, but the solar output in general, you know, it actually has changed over time. And I think we need to start with talking about what type of star our sun is. And then we can start to talk about how solar output changes. So if everybody will pull out their Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams. <laughs> Got mine here in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. You know, pull out your your, uh, your pocket diagram there, a little laminated card that you should always carry with you, where you're looking at the spectral class of stars. So this is the typical... O, B, A, F, G, K, M star sequence. So we're going from blue to red. Right. Um, And I always remember this. Our acronym was OBA Fine Girl Kiss Me. Right. Stuck stuck in there forever, right? And we classify these stars based on a lot of things. Um, But their temperature is one of the ways that we classify this. And our sun falls into the range of a typical yellow dwarf star. It's in the middle of the main sequence on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And so that's where many, many stars lie, is on this main sequence uh, tract. And so as they go through their lifespans, they travel through this main sequence. And our sun is about in the middle. It's middle-aged, formed around 5 billion years ago, expected to last another 5 billion years. 
Right. And so on the chart, you would have like temperature along the x-axis, temperature decreasing because red would be a cooler star than a blue. Mm -hmm. uh, and the main sequence is, uh, it's, it's linear if a geologist looked at it. Ah, so true. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I would call it vaguely sigmoidal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's where a lot of the stars in the universe fall, but they can go off main sequence. So you can go through blue giant to red giant uh, or down to white dwarf, which are off the main sequence, but most things stay on that track. Right, exactly. And like I said, the sun's about middle aged. It's classified as a G25 type star. Okay. Uh, it means the temperature of the photosphere is about. 6,000 degrees C, uh, it's about 11,000 Fahrenheit, but that isn't where it's the hottest, right? It's hottest deep in its core where the temperature is around 15 million degrees C or 27 million Fahrenheit. So toasty. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so the sun has been around for about 5 billion years. The best estimates are we've probably got enough fuel to run about another 5 billion or so. Right. Uh, Exactly. And, you know, early on, it was thought that this was, before we really knew about nuclear physics and nuclear reactions, uh, this was thought to be a frictional process and that the sun had a few hundred years left. <laughs> Thank God that's not true. <laughs> right. But now we, now we know about nuclear fusion, which is what's happening in the sun. We're smashing hydrogen atoms together and sequentially building larger and larger elements. Exactly. So this is where the sun's in its middle of its life cycle. So it's still happily fusing its limited amount of hydrogen into helium, which is great. That's where we like it. Um, and this fusion takes place deep in its core where the pressure is 340 billion times Earth's sea level air pressure. Which already is, <laughs> what, a thousand hectopascals? Mm -hmm, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, 101,000 pascals. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, multiply that by 340 billion. Mm -hmm. So yeah. put a put a nice uh, 10 to the... 10 to the 9? 9. 9 would be billion, so 9 to the... Or times 10 to the 11. Oh, yeah, 11. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> okay, yeah, so don't even comprehend that. <laughs> but back to this hydrogen converting into helium. I mean, this is what eventually is going to kill us, right? Because the sun is a limited amount of hydrogen. It's converting it to helium now. That's great. But once it starts to fuse helium or gets close to fusing helium, it's going to get a little iffy because the sun's going to get much more voluminous and much more unstable. And much more voluminous is a nice way to say the sun's going to put on a lot of <laughs> wait yeah it's it is going to need a much bigger belt we're looking at about a hundred times larger volume mm -hmm. and when you get that large you're going to shine a lot brighter so it's going to be two thousand times more luminous than it is now so that kind of puts climate change into perspective because once we get to that point yeah <laughs> i at some point you know we'll be swallowed in a <laughs> radiating fire uh <laughs> Okay, so why bother going on? And we'll see you next week. <laughs> no. Exactly. So, <laughs> so we're, but that's a little ways away. So when we're back further on the main sequence, we're back more towards the O or B class stars. The sun was actually smaller and it was not nearly as radiant. So it was about 6% smaller and it actually put out about 30% less radiative energy. Right. And so this is that faint young sun thing right we were 
Earth's been around not long after the sun. And so back in the day, we had 30% less radiation than we did now. And if you're just looking at a, here's the Earth, here's our composition, here's the sun, it's 30% less radiant. Once we would get liquid water on Earth, that simple calculation says we would be a frozen, hard snowball and nothing else would matter. We would never be able to get out of it just because the sun was that much less radiant. And so this is sort of the faint young sun paradox, right? Because obviously that didn't happen, and here we are. Right. I mean, we have had ice ages in the past, been Correct. ice house earth, but we're definitely in a dynamic environment in terms of the atmospheric composition of the earth and in terms of the output of the sun, which modifies the climate. Right. Because there are cycles that occur on the sun. Right. And so on the human time scale, you know, the sunspot cycle, that's a cycle we all know about, right? They occur in these roughly 11 year cycles. And when sunspots are these dark spots on the sun, and what they are, are large magnetic regions, they usually occur in pairs, because you get, you know, both poles of the magnet there, you get really cool prominences between them. Um, And what they do is they act to inhibit convection on the sun. That's why they look dark. And they're actually much cooler than the surrounding photosphere. But when they're present, the sun is more active overall. And even though these are dark spots, the sun is actually more luminous when sunspots are at a high. Right. And this is because you have flowing charged particles and some magnetic fields bend them around and cause all kinds of fun electromagnetic interactions. Yay. (laughs) Gotta love those. Yes. (laughs) So we've known about sunspots and the sunspot cycle for quite a while. So we've got records all the way back into, what, like the 1600s, I think? Yes, so it's pretty far back there. Um, This is interesting. When we talk about temperature and climate on Earth, you know, it wasn't until about the late 1800s or mid-1800s that we have really consistently good and consistent coverage temperature uh, measurements. But these sunspot cycles, way back there, right? So these sunspot cycles have, you know, climatic consequences. The Little Ice Age is a cool period that happened around 1650 to 1710. And that's said to have occurred during an unusual solar minimum that actually lasted many decades beyond that 11-year sunspot cycle. And so that solar luminosity decreased a little bit, led to the Little Ice Age. So this much cooler period that was, you know, 60 years long. Right. And so these sunspot cycles, we've, we're in the 24th measured sunspot cycle right now. Mm-hmm. And we have a minimum in sunspots and solar activity. Right. And this minimum is really minimum. So we're not just in a minimum, but it's postulated that we're even quieter than that maunder minimum that occurred during the Little Ice Age. So really quiet time so we're not getting cooler though right if anything we would expect temperatures to be going down but we know that they're not right exactly so our sun's currently putting out less radiation than normal and we're getting hotter but that's that's another (laughs) another story let's get back to this whole faint young sun paradox which you know is that we should be a hard snowball because we had such little solar radiation back in the day Um, so climatically speaking, earth is generally much hotter on average than we are today. You made mention of, we've been in ice ages before, but that's not how earth generally is. 
Right. So we've been in this hothouse or greenhouse condition often more often than not. Right. And this is where people are like, hey, climate change, you know, we're never, this ice age is unusual. Well, yeah, it is, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes with that. So usually we're a lot warmer. But how were we hotter in the past if the sun was 30% less luminous? Right, because when we're talking about the minimum now, it's not 30%, it's not even close. Things would be (laughs) drastically different. Yes, (laughs) yes, they would be. (laughs) So the Earth's atmosphere... It turns out, so the sun's 5 billion years old. The Earth's atmosphere is about 4 billion years old. And if, like you said, if it were the same 4 billion years ago as it were today, then we would have been completely frozen over. We never would have got out of it. The global temperature would have been minus 15 C, so 30 degrees below what we are now on average. Right. Yeah, exactly. And And also the rocks just don't bear this story out. Right, exactly. So we've got, you know, episodes of glaciation back in the past, but some of our early sedimentary rocks don't show this. It doesn't show global glaciations back then for any extended period of time. So that's the paradox. How did we stay warm enough to, you know, create life and all this other fun stuff that we have now with that faint young sun? Um, Early climate models, like we talked about, were pretty simple, right? And they showed that there was no way to escape from this ice house. But it doesn't take into account lots of things, like maybe the atmosphere was different. It also doesn't talk about tectonic activity and what that would have to do with changing Earth's climate. So how how do we account for that paradoxically warm climate in Earth's past with 30% less solar radiation? Right. Well, and we also know that tectonic activity and atmospheric composition are not a decoupled system (laughs) but they are in most models because we can't figure out how to how to handle all that data right which is one thing i am excited about with all this you know computing getting so big is that maybe these are going to be much better models in the future did you just say you were excited about a model look man this one time only and that i'm never gonna say it again I mean, all, I, I think it would be get. useful. I think it would meet your criterion. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Probably still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, possibly. <laughs> so one thing I think that people would think about, and we definitely got this question in class, well, hey, Earth used to be a lot hotter too, right? Because we just formed. I mean, one of the first geologic periods that we talk about is called the Hadean, which means hell-like. So, you know, what happened to that heat? Was that enough to keep us out of it? I mean, the game The Floor is Lava is based on something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's the Hadean. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the heat flux was massive, even during the Archean. Uh, I mean, we're still talking two to three times the current geothermal heat flux. Right. But even that, which is surprising, wasn't enough to compensate for that 30% reduced solar luminosity. Yeah, I mean, you got to think, ultimately, the sun's a lot of our energy. A whole lot. (laughs) That's why this is such a big paradox. And it's just something I feel like we just, we take for granted, and we don't really think about the sun's input in terms of these big climate changes, but it's obviously a huge driver. Yeah, I mean, you've, okay, so let me go on a minor digression here about how much (laughs) of our energy comes from the sun. So you're going to say, well, what about... Uh, our electricity that comes from a coal-fired power plant. 
Well, the coal is from plants and things that used to be alive and were fed by the sun. So you can check that one off. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about hydroelectric power? Well, that's driven by the water cycle, which is powered by the sun. And then so that leaves, well, what about nuclear power? Which you're going to say, well, those those minerals, those radioactive minerals have been there since the formation of the planet. So surely that can't be from the sun. No, it's not from our sun. It's from another sun that went supernova (laughs) and formed heavy elements that ultimately got incorporated into the earth. It's really all solar energy, just not necessarily our sun. Exactly. I love that one. I love that. Yeah, this all came from stars, man. Just not necessarily ours. And I mean, that's a lot of what we know about our sun is because we know where the sun is on the main sequence and so we also know where a lot of other stars are along the main sequence so we don't even have to model them really we could just use direct comparisons so when the sun was young it should have looked like this when the sun's going to be old it's going to look like this because we see these stars elsewhere in the universe yes and there are some exciting element forming things coming out of LIGO uh this yes. week that we're going to talk about, but not in this sequence of shows. Uh, right, exactly. I did put, um, I have put a link in for the part two of this episode for that because I got so excited looking at some of these videos and everything about these two neutron stars colliding. They're so cool, but we can, yeah, probably talk about that in its own show. I said, you're going to give it away. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, read read the paper in science. It's all there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly, <laughs> exactly. It was this huge spike of, it was, it was interesting because um, when we were talking about this faint young sun paradox and then uh, the, next, the next class we talked about snowball Earth, so how we have been frozen sometimes in Earth's past, and we looked at this graph, this was fantastically academic, of you know somebody made this hypothesis that in the past earth was completely frozen over and then they have number of publications graphed on this histogram (laughs) (laughs) like having to do with that you know so somebody says this crazy thing and then all these publications come out about it it was super fantastic yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it was like i said the most academic chart i've ever seen so somebody has a crazy idea and then either everyone has to refute it or get on the bandwagon it's plate tectonics that's everything mm-hmm. yeah and so this ligo thing I, I think i heard something crazy like it was like 300 publications came out in the last week having to do with this one finding so that's why that came to mind yeah so i think the best thing to do at this juncture is to leave you on a cliffhanger of <laughs> there is this paradox of 30 percent less incoming solar radiation or insulation and the earth was warmer right so think about that some and then next week we're going to be back with some answers to that question so i think that means it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday i'm so sad that you've exclusively taken over the cowbelling it makes me very sad but you know the baby and the cowbell don't mix together I was like, you can any time, but it's going to be followed by a shriek. So. Exactly. <laughs> we already have to, you know, edit out my ridiculous laugh. So let's not uh, <laughs> let's not add baby crying to that too. <laughs> right. And so this fun paper comes to us from listener Martin. He sent it to us via Slack, and 
It is called Citywide Effects of High Occupancy Vehicle Restrictions, Evidence from 3-in-1 in Jakarta by Hannah et al. Uh, so I didn't really understand how bad traffic is in other parts of the world, I think. <laughs> yeah, so early on in this paper, they say that Jakarta, Indonesia is a... A horrible place for traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the <laughs> far worst worse in the than world. L.A. or New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's uh, the worst U.S. city is New York, where average drivers stop about sixteen thousand three hundred times a year. Oh, oh my goodness! Uh, in Jakarta, that's thirty three thousand two hundred. So twice. Twice twice as much i i can't even fathom it i mean i haven't driven in new york since i was like 10 and then i wasn't driving and probably didn't care much so <laughs> yeah i mean i've walked around in new york and was glad i was walking uh yeah yeah i can't even i won't complain about oklahoma city traffic anymore <laughs> well and so in, in the u.s i mean commuting is a big deal i do it yeah uh, mm-hmm. i am fortunate that my commute is only 20 to 40 minutes depending on when i leave each way right yeah uh, but in the u.s places like new york washington atlanta these major metro areas uh, the average person spends more than an hour a day commuting oh yeah that sounds terrible you can fill that time by listening to don't panic geocast exactly uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh wait you probably already are okay well <laughs> and a selection of other podcasts to round out your your week there exactly so this traffic congestion i mean this is a quality of life issue in these urban areas and so lots of cities take on different approaches to deal with this traffic right and one that we have in this area even is hov lanes so these are high occupancy vehicle lanes right and so i don't i don't know if the i don't know if the standard hub definition is three people i think it i think it generally is right i I believe ours is more than one right okay all right so you can either get your blow-up dolls that fill out the whole area i've heard of people doing that before but i mean getting stopped exactly (laughs) (laughs) but i mean in jakarta that they have also hov lanes right and um (laughs) they have people who's this has been made into a business like Poor people will do this thing called jockeying, which you can hire people to just ride around in your car with you. So you meet that maximum three occupants and you can get into the HOV lane. Right. And so unlike here where you get in the HOV lane and if somebody, you know, if a police officer sees you and it's just you, they'll probably stop you. There is no checkpoint. They instituted a network of checkpoints in Jakarta. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, before the checkpoints, you could go up, and I think they said it was a little over a dollar US that you could pay somebody to just hop in your car and ride to work with you so that you could use the HOV lane. That's the weirdest Uber ever. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, reverse Uber. <laughs> reverse Uber, exactly. And then you and, just wind up at these people's places of work, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and th- apparently, this is a, such a big deal there because places like New York, Washington, Atlanta, Denver, they all have public transit. Uh, mm-hmm. But Jakarta, they have no subway, no light rail, and very limited commuter yeah. rail. Therefore, the worst traffic in the world. 
<laughs> right. And the the big issue with these HOV lanes is people say, well, look, we're sitting here in these three or four lanes, and we're dead stopped. And that HOV lane, there's just like car, and then nothing, and then car. And th- that, that lane is underutilized. We should be spreading the traffic across all of the lanes. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, so lots of people have or lots of cities have implemented these things like toll roads and everything to get rid of the traffic. But Jakarta is actually getting rid of their HOV lanes in order to s- spread the wealth, I guess. Right. I mean, even out that space and let everyone get a chance to go, but this is, didn't work out very well. Right. In fact, you know, they, they thought that this would help relieve the traffic problem. And, uh, <laughs> and, to spoil the conclusion it didn't it made it worse yeah well, uh, way, way worse so <laughs> but this was the some way cool... they did this i loved oh yeah i this was some cool data mining that i figured you would be very excited about <laughs> yeah so they use the google maps api mm-hmm. and they mapped out the the routes these three main routes that were hov before and after they were hov and then not hov and right. they pinged the API every 10 minutes for 24 hours a day to see what the traffic conditions were. And the way Google gets this is by having Android smartphones ping back their location and speed. So this is if you've used Waze for crowdsourced traffic, it's that sort of idea. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, I knew my phone was much busier than I was most of the time. <laughs> Right. And so, I mean, you can even volunteer. I mean, I opt into some traffic networks just because I want to know if the traffic's bad ahead and I need to take a different route. And if yeah. I'm stuck in the traffic, I'm happy to warn somebody else. Yeah, that is very uh, true. <laughs> so it, it's a neat way to do it. They did, I, I'm unsure, they didn't make it clear if they did this ping in real time before and after the switch or if they were able to get historical data. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little of both. Uh, I read sort of a little write up on the paper too as well because for they couldn't get they used historical data on some of the roads and then they did real time before the ban and after the ban uh on other main roads right and so they've got these plots which are time of day and then the average delay which they they quote the average delay and this is apparently a thing in traffic engineering in minutes per kilometer or minutes per mile okay All right. which makes sense that's not something it's not a unit i would have thought uh no to implement Mm-mm. nope uh but what you see is significantly longer delays after the policy was lifted within the 90 i mean well beyond the 95 percent confidence interval uh right yeah so you this time additional time to travel one kilometer relative to free flow rose by almost 50 percent. they said in the morning and doubled in the evening that's terrible (laughs) and during the rest of the day it was worse as well just not that bad right right yeah so all this delay by shutting down those hov lanes well and not even shutting them down just opening them up yes opening them (laughs) up to everyone yes yeah exactly right shutting down the policy um and leaked into not just morning and evening commute but just like you said all the time well and i can't figure out and they didn't seem to have a great explanation for this either why the evening was so much worse I know. I wondered that as well, because that's true. They said, and this is sort of true in a bunch of other places as well, that the evening is always worse. And I was trying to think, you know, do people go to work at different times and then all leave at the same time? I don't, I mean, it's five o'clock. 
quitting time no matter what? I don't understand that either. I don't know either. I mean, I guess I can see people leaving at different times because they have different commutes, but I would think that the main road cluggage would be the same. Right. And I mean, you have a certain number of cars go, so a certain number of cars have to come back. That's, yeah, that was interesting to me too. I mean, I, I leave for work early, but I also come back early. Early. So. Yeah, exactly. This 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 doesn't make, I guess maybe people are late in the morning and then everyone's ready to go home when it's time to go home. <laughs> It's true. Everybody drifts in and hopes nobody notices they're late. And then at 4.59, they're lined up at the door, it seems like, right? Exactly. That's the only thing that I could think of to to explain that. So that was one interesting result out of this. Uh, But why would this, was this, was it more people driving because they don't have to have the HOV uh, lane now? So they stop carpooling because it's inconvenient. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there are more cars on the road or is it something a little bit more complicated, a condition called hyper congestion? Oh, is that treatable? Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, there are some side effects though. (laughs) Uh, What, what this is, is where you increase the density of vehicles on the road so much that the average speed decreases faster than the number of vehicles (gasps) being added. So the, net car flow over the road falls drastically oh my god it's sort of a tipping point where once you get so many vehicles on the road all of a sudden there's a dramatic slowdown oh this sounds awful this sounds like vehicles just stacking up on top of each other essentially yeah i think this is the classic mass traffic jam mm-hmm. yeah um, well, awful and so there's probably some of both going on and mm-hmm. this is driving people off of these main roads and so not only did the traffic on the roads where there were HOV lanes increase, but the traffic on surrounding roads, the feeder roads, massively increased. So it made traffic worse everywhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, and I... Yeah, so this came out very recently. I would like to know if they've re-implemented HOV lanes. Yeah, no kidding. Well, they said that one of the reasons that they got rid of it, um, too, besides the congestion issue, but there was another problem is that people were using tranquilized babies as jockeys just to fill up their cars. Like, how awful is this? Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, so I guess you don't want to, you know, go around with a crying baby. So people were tranquilizing them to get picked up as these jockeys, which is terrible. So I don't know if that's going to go into play when they talk about, if they talk about re-implementing implementing these hov lanes or not i don't know and i mean i i will say when i have done hov lanes here uh you are flying compared oh yeah to... <laughs> it's terrifying yeah <laughs> that's the definition of the hammer lane you can either go 10 miles an hour in the main lanes or 90 in the, <laughs> exactly. the HOV lane. And so, like, this is one policy, these HOV lanes. And then I guess they said another policy that other cities have used is stuff like, um, you know, using specific, like, license plate restrictions based on what your license plate number is, if you can be on the road, and also just plain old tolls. And all of these have been shown to help uh, alleviate congestion. Right, so... If your traffic is congested, implementing HOV lanes or tolls is not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Taking them away is probably not the right move. 
Yeah, which you would think anyway, but now there's hard evidence for that. Exactly. So <laughs> thanks, Martin, for this fun paper. It was an interesting and entertaining read, and mm-hmm. it's a, a very straightforward read. Yes. So if you have a fun paper, would like to tell us what your average HOV speed is, or would like to calculate your delay in minutes per mile, <laughs> we would be very interested in hearing that. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at don'tpanicgeo. And always in the Slack chat room where we can actually show you pictures of some cool stuff, Um, maybe including some solar diagrams of how we're going to get swallowed up in 5 billion years. Right. (laughs) So until (laughs) next week, remember that's 5 billion years away. Don't panic. (laughs) It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.